0: episode 11, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And
1: I'm Sarah McCabe.
0: And today we'll be discussing episode 411, The Other Side. So, what did you think?
1: <laughs> uh, I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> yeah. Some are good, some are bad, but really just like a lot of emotion. <laughs> yeah,
0: this is a really, really emotional episode.
1: Yeah. How about you?
0: Um, I really liked it. Again, there are There were some things that I didn't like. There were a lot of things that I did like. I'm just really excited to talk about this. Um, Before we do, though, again, I wanted to take a minute and thank our reviewers. So thank you to Looking for the Truth, for your very, very kind words, um, and again for asking us to go back and recap previous seasons. I still can't imagine anyone would want to listen to us talk that much. Um, (laughs) And as I think we mentioned last episode, uh, we aren't planning on on doing – Previous seasons, we just like don't have time for that, but we are planning on doing special themed one shot episodes to keep us preoccupied during the interminable hiatus. So stay tuned for those. Um, and for anyone who hasn't yet, if you guys could take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes as well, that would be a huge help for other fans of the Hundred to find us.
1: Yeah, and I also wanted to say before we get started that just to be one hundred percent open, we have now seen the rest of the season because we are late. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are still going to be focusing our recaps on each specific episode, and we're going to try not to really delve into anything else that happens, so there shouldn't really be any spoilers yeah, here. Yeah, this is
0: a spoiler-free zone moving forward. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let's get into the recap.
1: Yeah, let's start with the, the, the fun recap first. Let's do Raven. Yeah, let's do Raven. <laughs> the, the, happy, the note of happiness among the rest of this misery. <laughs> okay. Uh, So we open up, we see Raven is planning her spacewalk with her hallucination of Becca, but she keeps hearing this disembodied voice behind her calling her name. And suddenly her nose starts bleeding and she falls to the ground seizing. And while she's lying there, she sees someone step up to her and offer her their hand. And it turns out to be Sinclair! (laughs) Sinclair!
0: he's back (laughs) I I
1: really
0: did not expect to ever see him again I was shocked when he showed up oh my god me
1: too I was I was so happy to see him again like I think they could have made a different choice and went with Finn but I really love that they decided to go with Sinclair instead who's always been someone who has you know mentored Raven and built her up and and believed in the strength of her mind which is exactly what she needs right now
0: yeah yeah I, I actually I think it's interesting that Right before we learn um, just who this disembodied voice belongs to, we hear him say, you know, don't trust her. You know, right after Becca encourages Raven once again to find a way to spacewalk. And now I know this might sound crazy and I'm usually not the one who goes forth with all the crazy theories, but it just like sparked this idea that maybe hallucination Becca is not Becca after all, but maybe she's actually like at least partially Allie too. Um, Because it's Allie's code remnants that are still stuck in Raven's brain. And like the fact that Sinclair doesn't want Raven to trust her makes me think she must be untrustworthy for some reason. Um, And ever since Raven started hallucinating Becca, like something has just felt off to me. And and I will get back into this later, but it's just something that I've been like mulling over. What do you think?
1: I mean, I, I do think that's totally possible. I'm not sure if that's the explanation I want. Um, I, I really do like the thought of Raven sitting here just like arguing with two halves of herself, you know, the the doubting side, the one that's always been trying to take over her for a long time, especially after she uh, hurt her leg, you know, the side that tells her that she's not good enough and that it would be better for her and everyone else if she would just, you know, fade away. And then we also have the confident side, the side that knows just how smart she is and just how much she brings to the table, the side that knows her worth and that's not only based about her physical ability, but also about her um, inner strength and intelligence I I just really like that that interplay there
0: yeah yeah I I would also prefer that Um, my theory isn't what's happening here I like yours better but I I am wondering if the writers are kind of writing themselves a door they might want to open up next season I think this scene works both ways I just I don't know if these two interpretations necessarily cancel each other out and I'm just I don't know
1: yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they do decide to go in that direction, because the show has has really great continuity from season to season, and the writers never forget these tiny little details, and they usually, you know, bring them up later on um but for this season i'm just really happy to read it as raven arguing with herself but you know next season if they want to use this plot as remnant alley code trying to convince raven to go back to space to i don't know like rescue bill cadigan or something (laughs) (laughs) i won't be upset
0: yeah no i wouldn't be upset about that either
1: Um, so Raven wakes up from her seizure and she sees Becca sitting with her back toward her. But when Raven turns Becca around, Becca has tape over her mouth and behind her Sinclair says that Becca isn't as smart as she thinks she is.
0: So again, you know, from like a writing point of view, there is a strong deviation in this episode. You know, they suddenly frame Becca as the villain. And since her introduction, Becca has has been an unquestionable hero. And Ali was always painted as the villain. Those are those are their designated roles. For Becca to be treated suddenly as the villain from the writers, it just makes me think that they're trying to suggest that Ali has taken over Raven's manifestation of Becca and corrupted it to serve her own purposes somehow. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean... I think we should totally look at all of these um, Becca Sinclair-Raven interactions on two levels. Like one, that it's just Raven arguing with herself. And the other, that the writers are planning a continuation of the story in season five. Because it makes sense that, you know, when Sinclair makes Becca a villain who wants Raven to kill herself, that Becca would take on more of Allie's characteristics because Allie is the only one that Raven really has any experience with. But I also do love your point that Sinclair in this episode starts using some really like strange language to describe Becca, language that it seems like it's almost a little bit off if it's just Raven talking to herself. You know, like the um, the she isn't as smart as she thinks quote here. It's a strange line if it's just about the like Becca part of Raven, because what exactly would that mean? Like. Perhaps it's that Raven is just getting caught up in her own brilliance and she's not able to see that there's much better, much smarter options out there in front of her. I, I don't know.
0: Exactly. Like, and, and also, he uses a pronoun instead of Becca's name. He never actually calls her by her name at all. You know, Becca isn't the one who's overconfident in her own intelligence. Historically, Becca has been the one to show a lot of humility when it comes to her brain, whereas... Ali has always been convinced of her own superior intelligence, um, which is why Jaha is like so easily seduced by her, but I digress. <laughs>
1: it's not an episode of skycast if britt doesn't mention her hatred of Ja, or you know if i don't mention my love of bill katekin <laughs> like you could play a drinking game to us if you wish
0: <laughs> yeah we should make up a drinking game and post it to the site
1: <laughs> let's see we have um every time we talk about how horrible riley is every time we uh mention how screwed up octavia is having grown up under the floor mm-hmm. every time i gush about nyla uh every time we're surprised when the show does exactly what it says it's going to do drink <laughs>
0: yeah take a shot actually don't take a shot you be dead <laughs>
1: Um, um but back to this line, the the she's not as smart as she thinks line. I do like the idea here that um, the Sinclair part of Raven is saying that this remnant alley code in her brain has been trying to manipulate her, but it's clearly not quite working or Sinclair wouldn't be there.
0: Right, right. No, it's a, it's an interesting idea that some part of Raven recognizes that Becca or Ali is, is alien and that this idea is actually not intrinsic to Raven's thinking. And in order to combat this, her mind conjures up Sinclair, who, as you said, symbolizes a person who has never doubted Raven's natural abilities.
1: It's like, like, a, like an intruder alert. Like there's like red alarms blaring in Raven's brain and, and Sinclair's like the cleanup crew that's sent in. <laughs>
0: yeah, Ali Becca is is basically malware and Sinclair is like the ad blockers we use on our laptops.
1: <laughs> Allie tries to pop up and Sinclair just like smacks her back down. Get away from me. <laughs> I like this metaphor. <laughs> um Sinclair says he didn't die so that Raven could kill herself but Raven says she's not trying to kill herself she's dying and there's a difference and Sinclair tells her that Raven Reyes the Raven Reyes that he knows doesn't quit she keeps fighting and Raven argues that she can't fight what's happening to her brain but Sinclair asks if she's even tried and before she floats herself on a whim they should see if there's something that they can do
0: I love this line from Raven. I think it's speaking to more than just Raven's plot line, um, but it also speaks to the other delinquents who are planning suicide in this episode as well. Uh, Raven says that she's, she's dying and that that's different than killing herself, which is very similar to Jasper and the delinquents philosophy who argue that there is an external death wave coming to kill them and they just want to choose how they're going to go out. Do you, do you think that this statement is true for either of them or does it like ring truer for Raven than the delinquents or maybe some of the delinquents rather than all of them?
1: I think that, um, the other delinquents, I think they do have other options that they're choosing not to explore. Whereas Raven believes and has believed for a while that she's going to lose control of her mind no matter what, and that she would rather die now with dignity um it's kind of a difference i think between suicide and assisted suicide which in my opinion are very different things agreed and i genuinely don't think that raven would ever kill herself if she thought that she had other options because you know as sinclair reminds her she's like a fighter to her very core she's just not the type to to give up
0: yeah, I agree. But then does that mean that the delinquents are just quote unquote giving up? And, and if so, is that the wrong choice? I'm just trying to suss out where the line is. I mean, obviously, I don't think suicide is ever the right choice barring um, terminal illness. But I do think that in some cases you have to want to live. And I'm not sure the delinquents have that like critical drive to survive that you need.
1: Yeah, we get into difficult territory because, you know, depression is a real mental illness and it's definitely not a choice to feel that way. And while I do think that killing yourself is a choice, it's not a choice that a healthy brain makes. And there there is more at play on a biological level that is difficult to fight without treatment. Um unfortunately the delinquents aren't in a world where they have access to therapy and to medicine to help them fight their depression which really leaves them feeling like they have no other options even if they even if they do they just can't see them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and there's another aspect to this too that the delinquent suicide they don't feel like a personal choice anymore because because they decided it as a group and I I think that that affects the idea that this is about them choosing something for themselves but I think we should just wait and get into all of this later.
1: Yeah, true. I mean, like in so many ways, this is also a mob mentality here. Um, but yeah, we should definitely get into that and in that storyline yeah, later. Yeah, uh, And just for the record, everybody, I have a cold right now, so I sound kind of weird, at least to me. So I'm just gonna like put that out there.
0: For any of you who are counting, this is their second cold.
1: In oh my gosh! Four I cannot get healthy. It's the worst. But whatever, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> whatever. It's been really Summer's fun, coming. Really so. fun
0: living with her.
1: It's great. <laughs> Um, Sinclair and Raven realize they need to purge the remnant alley code in Raven's brain to stop the damage from getting worse and to give her brain time to repair itself. And how would they clear the code from a computer? They'd reboot. Can I
0: just say that I miss Sinclair so much <laughs> when he tells Becca that obviously Raven isn't a computer or her code wouldn't be killing her. I died. <laughs> his sass is just so on point. I'm really sad he isn't coming back for good so we can adjust, enjoy his sass all the time. But
1: he's <laughs> always with her i'm getting ahead of myself but it's so good. <laughs> so good um so they decide they have to stop raven's heart long enough for the electrical activity to stop too which becca reveals is 15 minutes and raven would be dead long before they could actually restart her heart again but beautiful brilliant raven realizes that might not be the case not if she's really really cold and I have to say, I, I'm getting more and more on board the theory here that this like remnant alley code in Raven's brain is trying to convince her to go into space because, you know, at this point, Raven has made up her mind, it seems like, would she still be arguing with herself about it? Um, unless Becca's just representing Raven's fear that she could die today instead of tomorrow, maybe, I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's it's very suspicious. I, I've been suspecting that the Remnant Code has been operating apart from Raven's conscious um, and for that matter, possibly controlling her, you know, for a while. But this episode is definitely helping construct this argument in a in a more concrete way.
1: I, too, have been wondering that. Um, but I did expect it to have a bit more impact on the plot this season. And since it didn't, I'm not as confident that that's actually the case but i could see the writers having you know set this all up to explore in season five um and again that would be a great bit of continuity there that i wouldn't hate so yeah yeah um so becca says that even if this works raven will be normal again and sinclair is absolutely appalled and he says that raven has never been normal sinclair the number one raven stan that we have all been missing (laughs) I, I just love seeing someone tell her to her face how amazing she is. You know, even if, even if Raven in this theory is like arguing with herself and she's actually basically telling herself this, maybe that's even better. I don't
0: know. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I think in either theory, you know, Sinclair is purely a figment of Raven's own imagination. Raven has had such a hard time recognizing her own value um, compared to her like souped up code brain. And it it may have been, it may have taken a manifestation of her old chief's ghost, but she is finally able to identify her own natural self-worth. And that's beautiful.
1: Yep. Agreed. Yeah. Um, Becca asks, what makes Raven think the future will be different from the past? Even if she lives, this pain she has is still going to be with her. But Raven says, she doesn't choose pain, she chooses life. It's like, boom, what a good line. So freaking good. <laughs> uh, and, and I love the differentiator here too, you know, that pain is a part of life and you can't have life without also experiencing pain. And the choice is really how you choose to deal with that pain. You know, it harkens back to um, Clark's line at the end of season three, that you don't fix pain, you overcome it. And Raven's internal strength rivals any character I've ever seen really. And if anyone could overcome all that pain in the world, it's our girl Raven.
0: You're going to kill me, but you just reminded me that when Clark said that she was standing between Becca and Allie, and that line was directed to Allie, and in this scene, it's almost identical in structure with Sinclair playing Becca's part, which means that this version of Becca actually represents Allie, who again is fixated on ending pain.
1: No, no, I I totally agree. Like when Becca when Becca said that bit about pain, it felt very much like Allie from season 3 because she's just used to like harp on that over and over again. Uh, and what I love about this plot line in this episode is that it you know it works on both levels like the writers don't have to go there if they don't want to everything is still completely explainable without it but that would just kind of add an extra layer of brilliance here.
0: yeah and I love what you said earlier about Raven's internal strength. you know Raven now faces the same kind of internal dilemma that Clark did on all season especially in the beginning you know we talked a lot about Raven's judgment issues and the fact that she's she's never had to make that kind of choice. And I don't think that this is entirely analogous to the kind of decisions that Bellamy and Clark have to face on a regular basis, but I do think it's one of the few times Raven has had to to weigh and measure an enormous decision um, all by herself, and I, I really like that the writers brought her arc to this place.
1: I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast before, but you and I have discussed many times how we see Clark as the strongest character when facing external forces, but Raven is really the strongest character when it comes to internal forces. So it's great to see how Clark's External choice in season three can really tie into Raven's internal choice here. You know, they're both they're both weighty decisions, but Raven doesn't have a Bellamy to help center her and to reassure her. She she really only has herself like she has to rely on herself. And luckily, she's more than up to the challenge, as we see here in this episode, when she talks to herself the entire time. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, so we switch to we see Raven in the ice bath and Raven is Ravensplaining to herself by way of Sinclair. <laughs> Basically, the plan is she set a live wire to go off when she flatlines that's going to restart her heart and that uh, could also send her into cardiac arrest. And if that happens, then she'll have to shock herself again with a defibrillator.
0: Yeah, Becca Alley is, is still holding real strong here. You know, she's trying to persuade Raven that that the spacewalk is a better plan and that this is a waste of Raven's talent and I love that Raven responds with you know what else is a waste of talent dying (laughs) um it's such a great line (laughs) putting aside the theory that Becca is actually Allie I I really love that Raven has truly realized now that dying would be a tremendous waste not only of her intelligence but that life is valuable and she deserves to live and she should try as hard as humanly possible to fight for it
1: Guys, I was so emotional this entire scene. Like, I have loved every second of Raven's Arc this season. I mean, like hell, this entire series. And seeing everything that she's gone through finally culminate with the realization of how important she is is so important to me and I'm dead.
0: <laughs> yeah, me me too. I, this this is working on every level, emotionally, thematically, character, plot. This was just a perfect scene. It was perfect.
1: Um, When Sinclair asks Raven how she will overcome the survival instinct to panic when her heart starts to slow, she says that she will by being awesome, as our Raven (laughs) usually is. (laughs) Um, Sinclair isn't impressed, but Raven says the takeaway she's learned is that you have to be willing to die to really live, and she is.
0: Yeah, Sinclair might not be impressed, but I'm inclined to agree agree with Raven. Like, she is awesome, and she can do anything she puts her brilliant mind to.
1: (laughs) I've, like, lost the ability to think intelligently about this plotline, because... I'm just so stuck on how much I love Raven <laughs> like everything about her she is freaking awesome and I'm so glad that she sees that and this is exactly what I wanted for her certainly for this whole season but but really this whole series
0: yeah yeah this is where we've always wanted her to kind of end up
1: uh and, and, and I'm curious to see where she's gonna go from here now that she's kind of she's got that confidence back in herself
0: exactly I know I think we we've like neutraled out here and now yeah. there's only like you know what what heights can she reach now? Mm-hmm.
1: Sinclair tells Raven that if this works, he and Becca will be gone when she wakes up. But she tells Sinclair that he's always with her and she thanks him. But he reminds her that she did this, not him or Becca. It was always her. And I'm sitting here just like ugly crying. Oh my guys. God. I get like teary
0: eyed every time. Like the first time we watched it, the second time we watched it, when we talked about it, you know, when we were playing this episode. And now like I keep I'm just crying all the time. Um, this this line was like the a bun a punch to my emo- over emotional gut we we know just how much Sinclair means to Raven and it's just so powerful this idea that Raven carries the memory of Sinclair and can appreciate the way that he saw her and then use that to help herself keep fighting it's just overwhelming and I clearly cannot talk coherently about this anymore.
1: <laughs> I mean uh, the fact that her mind manifested Sinclair as the best most hopeful part of herself really speaks for itself you know Sinclair believed in her when no one else really would and and he gave her the tools to to believe in herself. And Sinclair's line is also the one line that makes me think here as well that um, it is meant to be Raven talking to herself, just because, you know, he's saying, like, it, it really is always you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do still think you can make the argument that Sinclair is saying that he's really her, and Ali Becca is, like, not helping constructively at all, and she's not really Raven. We could go in circles about this forever. Yeah, right? no, I, I can totally see that argument here,
0: and I, I think that you know maybe the answer is that these two theories aren't actually com- in competition with each other, and they can just sort of coexist side by side.
1: Yeah, we, we don't lose anything if it was Raven all along and no one else. Um, we just have things to gain if it if it wasn't just that. So, you know, damn sly writers, damn sly. We're watching you. <laughs> Uh, Becca says that it's not too late to change her mind, but Raven just dons the breathing mask and goes underwater and she puts her hand to the glass and Sinclair puts his hand over hers and then she falls unconscious.
0: This gesture from Sinclair and Raven where their hands meet on either side of the glass completely wrecked me. I'm done. It's just such a human thing to reach out for comfort and support and affection. I, I don't know if this was in the script or if this was an acting choice, but either way, it was like the perfect way to button up this entire plot line.
1: Yeah, I I'm so, I'm so, 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 so glad that, you know, even when Raven was alone here in Becca's lab, her mind somehow knew that she wasn't really alone at all and, like, kind of helped her through that. It was beautiful. So Raven flatlines, and the live wire restarts her heart, and she shoots out of the water, but, yeah, of course, goes into cardiac arrest. So she, like, falls out of the tub and is, like, crawling toward the defibrillator, and she's finally able to reach it, and she shocks herself again. For a second, everything's quiet, and then she wakes up, and her heart is now beating normally. And so she immediately grabs the radio and says, This is Raven Reyes, and I'm alive. <laughs> and it's like, Raven freaking Reyes, everybody. My queen, my goddess, she's basically the light of my life. I will follow her to the ends of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> she's mine as well, but oh my god, like.
0: You know, for the goddess genius that Raven is, did she not think about moving that defibrillator over <laughs> to the edge of the tank? Like, did you not anticipate that your muscles would be numb and, you know, you would have to drag yourself 10 feet during cardiac arrest? You know, maybe that wasn't the smartest idea. Come on now.
1: Come yeah, on. Yeah, those were my thoughts exactly when I first watched this. But I also did appreciate this, like, added drama of her clawing herself across the room toward life. You know, it was a nice, if unnecessary, um, bit of poetry. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It was very dramatic. <laughs> was. This is a this was a very dramatic but like really emotionally satisfying plotline overall and it was the the, the definitely the happiest plotline in this yeah, episode. Yeah, actually
0: now I'm sad we got that one out of the way. I know, now we
1: <laughs> <laughs> cuz we only have gloomy things coming up. Um but Speaking yeah. of, <laughs> love Raven. So happy she's alive and healthy and and we'll see what happens from here. Yeah. Let's move on to the tough one okay um the arcadia one yeah (laughs) i think we have a lot to say about this one so um yeah let's just jump right in go for it uh so in arcadia monty has donned a radiation a, a radiation suit which um jasper makes fun of and monty tells him that everyone is getting sick now because of the radiation and they need to leave for the bunker tonight or they won't make it and you know part of monty's appeal is his emotional optimism but at this point, I I don't understand how he really thinks or at least seems to think that everyone is just going to decide to leave now after everything.
0: I agree. Like, let's just say that Harper is is really lucky she's dating Monty and not me because I would have left by now. <laughs> um, but in all serious, I, seriousness, I I think it's precisely because Monty is eternally optimistic that he's able to save at least one person, you know, namely Harper. So it turns out to be worth it. I'm, I'm actually more annoyed in this scene that Jasper is still making fun of Monty for being so optimistic, but... Jasper's headspace is not a place to really care about how other people are feeling so that does make me make sense to me um even if it's just like a little bit annoying
1: yeah you know I don't know if Jasper's making fun of Monty so much as just not really being able to like take the threat of life or death seriously anymore because you know he's already made his decision and he just wants Monty to Monty to see that so they can still like joke around and be them in the time they have left um but of course Monty could never see it that way Because how can you joke around with your best friend Who decided that life isn't worth living anymore Yeah, it's not funny It's definitely not funny um, and, and Monty very much Is not laughing <laughs> uh, Someone calls for help Because Riley isn't breathing And Monty realizes he's died Not because of radiation poisoning But because he overdosed on the Chobie tea
0: Oh darn, <laughs> Riley's dead
1: I, I uh, Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, this, this is like the, the one. You know, <laughs> I'm like, sorry, I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> you know, I, I cried so much in this episode, but this is definitely the point I cried hardest for sure. You know, farewell, sweet prince. <laughs> we hardly knew ye. <laughs> no, really, though. We hardly knew ye because you were terribly written. But um, at least now we don't have to deal with them anymore. I guess he was just another red shirt after all. He was. He was another red shirt. He was like not even. He was. I've seen better red shirts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We have. Especially on this show.
1: Oh, man. Um, Monty wants to try to revive him. But Jasper says to let him go. Side note. Jasper's also team, D N R R. Do not resuscitate Riley. I should not be making fun of this, but it's not, it's it's but Riley's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> no one else's death is funny except no. for Riley's. Riley should not have died because he should never have existed in the first place. Agreed. But whatever. Um Monty says the death wave will be here in two days and they'll all be dead tomorrow from radiation poisoning. So he's going to leave tonight um Jasper looking at Riley sees that he died with you know no pain no suffering and he says they should all go out like this while they still can tonight I thought it was really
0: important that Harper's first instinct was to resuscitate Riley when Monty tells her to go get the med kit I think Harper you know his she's in a lot of pain and she doesn't know how to process it and and found the idea of staying behind appealing in a lot of ways this gut instinct shows that somewhere deep inside she still does value life and she still is about survival it's very different mental place than where Jasper is who has processed his pain and has made this decision with open eyes
1: true I I think this this shows why she is the only one who ends up choosing to keep going for sure
0: definitely and I'm glad the writers incorporated this small character development beat for her because if they hadn't I'm not sure if her choice to live at the end would have made total sense to me
1: uh, Monty's in the rover with Harper later And he says they need to leave tonight uh, Monty says that Jasper and Harper are his family they you know, all he has left And that Harper is a fighter and doesn't give up That's why he loves her But Harper says that she doesn't love him That he's not enough to make her want to live And that she's not worth dying for So he needs to save himself She white-fanged him! Yeah, she, like, she air-butted him I think this
0: may be the first time the writers successfully wrote Harper's character so that I interpreted it the way they intended me to. Something was finally working for me here um, for Harper's character. What about you?
1: Yeah, I I definitely agree. You know, the line um, I'm not worth dying for really clinched to me how worthless she feels compared to Monty, who is like this light in the darkness for so many people. Like he's such a loving, forgiving soul. And it would be it would be hard to constantly be comparing yourself to that, especially for Harper after, you know, leaving Lewis to die in the black rain and feeling still so much guilt after that. Um, she, she doesn't feel like she's worth saving, which, which Monty knows is wrong. And, and, you know, we know is wrong, uh, but he can't save her. She needs to save herself. And, and she doesn't think that she has the strength for it at this point. So she's really trying to hurt Monty as much as she can. So he'll choose to save himself. And it's funny in a weird way because they're both trying to save each other and are both falling short because as has been a major theme this season, you, you can't really save someone without their consent. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Jasper is staring at the moon outside Uh, it's red because of the death wave and Monty finds him and tells him they have to go and Jasper says he is leaving now and for all its faults earth is really beautiful and this is a scene since we first watched it we've both really dreaded recapping we have a lot to say both positive and negative um, but overall this was a really difficult scene to watch you know, we've seen Jasper and Monty both go through so much and to see their friendship end here was, it was quite honestly, it was devastating.
0: Yeah. It, yes. Because, you know, because both of our schedules were so busy over the last couple of weeks, we were actually both alone when we watched this and it could not have happened um, for a worse episode for me. Like sitting in my dark hotel room, watching this by myself and watching them having to say goodbye was one of the most intensely heart-wrenching things I've seen on this show.
1: I spent a good chunk of this episode actually crying, um, especially when it came to the Raven Sinclair scenes because they were just that powerful to me. Um, So after that last scene, this this one came right after Raven and Sinclair saying goodbye, and I was already sobbing, and that just kind of like carried over into this scene. And I, I couldn't really even follow it the first time because I was crying so hard. Like it was it was honestly a little bit embarrassing and I'm glad Brit wasn't here to see it.
0: I think it would have been almost identical to the like dripping situation that was happening all over my face. Like it would not have been embarrassing. I, I mean, would have looked exactly the same.
1: I'm gonna be totally honest. I can count on one hand the times that I've cried as hard from an episode of TV as I did with this one. Um, in fact, I, I, can, I can name them all. Um, one is Buffy's The Body. Yeah. Two is Angel's Shells in season four, season five. And three is Lost's um, Through the Looking Glass. So for everyone who's seen those episodes, you'll know why I won't spoil it for everyone else. But but that's it. Like those are the only three episodes that I would ever have cried as hard as I cried in this episode. So you I think you can you can say that this episode really hit me hard.
0: Yeah, and I mean I cry all the time as Sarah knows. <laughs> so I, I can't quantify it as clearly as she can, but I can say this was an incredibly emotional episode for me. Um and I, I wanna applaud the hundred for creating this exchange and having it resonate so much.
1: Yeah. So um this is gonna be difficult, but please bear with us. Yeah. Um, Monty realizes that Jasper has overdosed on tea, but Jasper said he drank just the right amount. Monty grabs him, asking what he's done, and Monty goes to take off his helmet. Jasper tries to stop him, saying, don't take it off, not for me. And here in the end, I do love that Jasper understands that Monty wants to live, and he doesn't want to take that choice away from Monty anymore than Jasper, Jasper wants to be um, forced to live himself.
0: Yeah. Um, there are so many similarities between Jasper and Harper in this episode. Harper also described her alcohol intake as like just the right amount in a past episode. And she told Monty earlier that she wasn't worth it when Monty, for Monty risking his life. Um, I think it's an interesting parallel that the show is drawing between the two most important people in Monty's life, how they see themselves and how they see Monty. And ultimately, Harper is the one who realizes Monty is enough to live for, while Jasper just can't go on, you know, despite how much he loves Monty, um, which he does make clear in this episode that he does love him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Jasper says that Monty needs to let him go, but Monty promises that he'll never forgive him if he does this. Jasper tells him not to say that, to say that he loves him, because if he doesn't, he'll regret it. Uh, Monty tries to stick a finger down Jasper's throat, but Jasper fights him off, and Monty begs Jasper to let him help him. But Jasper tells him that he'll see him on the other side, and he dies in Monty's arms as Monty grips his face and tells Jasper that he loves him.
0: Yeah, I'm getting teary again. Yeah, Um, me too. I I did appreciate that they included this tiny moment of humor here at the end um, when Jasper tells Monty that it's unsanitary to stick his fingers down his throat. You know, just as a way to remind us who Jasper used to be. It was like a tiny homage to his old self. And it also just kind of helped break up the tension in this scene a little bit with much needed relief.
1: Yeah, it was almost more devastating with that line because it was both funny and also, again, very much wasn't funny, which just compounded everything. Um, I think we need to discuss this choice here to have Jasper commit suicide because um, we both have so many, so many feelings. Um, we know he he was initially supposed to do it at the end of season three in a thread that ended up getting cut after all this social media fallout last season, and and I for one. I have a lot of thoughts on a character level, on a storytelling level, and on like a greater societal level. So do you want to start maybe with what this means for Jasper as a character?
0: Sure. Um, I think that's a good place to start as any. I think from a character perspective, I'm really pleased that they chose to let him say goodbye and to give his friends some semblance of closure. The way his suicide was originally planned in season three, um, well, I think I might have preferred it um, just from a story perspective, would have ultimately been a lot harsher given the fact that he would not have had this heartfelt conversation with Monty. And I, I do think that this is incredibly effective.
1: Yeah, I do agree that it was good to have this level of closure for everyone, including the audience. And from a character perspective, This feels very true to Jasper's mindset and has all season because, you know, he hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, I do find it a really interesting setup of characters they've given us to explore the issue in this episode. You know, we have Jasper who chooses not to live, we have Harper who chooses to live for Monty, and we have Raven who chooses to live for herself, and these arcs all seem very true to their respective characters for me. Um, for Jasper in particular, we've talked before about how we think it's important that the show portrays all of the different ways that people handle grief and depression, because that's true to real life. So, so strictly in terms of characterization, this works for me.
0: Me too. Um, and I'm really glad you brought up the fact that the show does not make, or does not take PTSD lightly and are not afraid to explore the potential mental tolls that it can take on people. Plot-wise, I don't think that this works as well for me. Do you want to dive
1: into that? (laughs) Uh, Sure as hell do. (laughs) I figured. Um, So this is everything I've been afraid of all season. Because on a storytelling level, I have to say, I think the writers screwed this one up. I I don't say this often on this show. um, Not on a large-scale level like this, but I am saying it now. Jasper had absolutely no arc this entire season. You know, he ended episode 11, the exact same character he was when we saw him in the opening of episode one this season. And from an editor's perspective, that's just bad storytelling. It's been been really interesting to see him paired up with other characters who have different mindsets, but ultimately he moved nowhere as a character. He was completely flat. So that just, it feels incredibly wasteful to me. Because there are so many ways they could have explored this mindset this season that also allowed for dynamic storytelling. And yet they chose not to. Um, so what what do you think? Because I could keep complaining for a while. Oh, no, I,
0: I completely agree, actually. I I can't help thinking back to the first episode when you and I spent a lot of time theorizing where his character would go and how we hoped that they'd give him a purpose so his death wasn't in vain, because I think you and I both were pretty convinced he was going to die this season. Yeah. Um, I understand that when they made the decision not to kill him off at the end of last season, they may not have had a complete fourth season storyline planned for him. But this was like the fourth time Jasper beat the odds and stayed alive despite the writer's initial intention to kill him. So... I don't know. I I just think instead of taking that as an opportunity to explore his mindset, as you said, um, they essentially just drew out the finale death scene this entire season so that they could have the ending they originally planned. But it's not effective after 11 episodes of Stagnant Plot.
1: Yeah, I mean, like it was basically one 11 episode long suicide scene, which is terrible. I mean, you know, it it brings us, I guess, to the third perspective. I think that connects very well. um, Looking at this at this plot line from a societal standpoint, so I have two questions for you. Do you think this was a responsible storyline? And tangential to that, do you think TV shows have a responsibility to tell responsible stories? Hmm.
0: So those are really tough <laughs> questions. <laughs> Thanks. So first question. Um, I think if they were adamant about Jasper committing suicide and exploring a suicide storyline i think that this was the more responsible way to portray that i think given everything that happened over the course of season three and the social ramifications um that it inspired and all of the fallout it it would have been insensitive to go through with it at the at that point Mm -hmm. i i'm not sure if if there is one definitive way to responsibly portray a character committing suicide from ptsd but I, I do think that they tried to explore this fairly and and made sure to posit that Jasper's decision ultimately derived from a place of mental illness, which when not treated properly or at all, can result in harmful and dangerous situations like suicide.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really difficult with a show like this, where, um, as we mentioned earlier, I think these characters live in a post-apocalyptic world, and they're constantly facing these like life-or-death situations and these soul-crushing decisions, and there's no outlet for them to get help from professionals. And if this were taking place in the real world, then I would say that watching a character struggle like this without at least allowing them the opportunity to get help would be irresponsible storytelling to me. Um, but with The Hundred you know, none of those teens had that help available to them, at least not the kind that they needed. And it was hard for them to fight that depression without it. But to this point, um, for anyone who's listening to this podcast, who is struggling with depression, you know, there are so many places that you can reach out to if you need help. You absolutely have options. And if you're contemplating suicide or if you're having suicidal thoughts, we beg you to reach out to someone because you don't need to go through this alone.
0: I completely agree. And I second that. Um, And I I think there's another element here that we need to talk about as well, um, because in this age of television where shows like The 100 explore such complicated and heavy issues, responsible storytelling is valid, um, but so is responsible viewing. And if you are someone who is battling something and you know you are susceptible to specific triggers, you are ultimately responsible for making sure you avoid them. I think that there are some cases where a show includes a trigger um, and it comes out of nowhere, But The 100 is not that show, and if you've been watching up to this point, you know where this is heading. Um, If suicide and depression are things that you are fighting, this might not be the show for you, and ultimately, you alone are responsible for what you consume, and the show cannot limit itself to what topics it should explore just because it could be painful for some audiences. You know, that that would be bad storytelling in its own way.
1: Yeah, I mean, The 100 is brutal, and it's bloody, and it's painful, and they make no qualms about it. And, and I completely understand why someone would not want those kinds of stories in their life. You know, I think we get enough of that in the real world. Um, and there are definitely people who would be much happier not watching this show. But for me, you know, getting to explore this kind of pain and violence in a safe space, a safe space is really important. Um, It allows me to confront my own biases and morality without judgment, and I actually think that I'm healthier for it in a weird way.
0: Oh, me too. I mean, I think this is why you and I spend an unspeakable amount of hours discussing this ad nauseum. So um, I'm going to flip this around and ask you, what do you think about your second question, whether TV shows have a responsibility to their audience to to tell responsible stories?
1: Hmm. So... I think that I actually hold a rather unpopular opinion, (laughs) go figure, Um, in that I very vehemently do not think that a TV show should ever force a message out on their audience. Um, TV shows have a responsibility only to the stories they're telling, to make them as nuanced and as genuine and as true to life as possible, and that's it. I I want them to feel real, I don't want them to feel like an after-school special. And honestly, above everything else, that's why I love The 100 so much, because it doesn't tell me what to think. It allows me to, you know, come away with my own opinions and my own takeaways. And this is the mark of strong storytelling for me.
0: I think I agree with you for the most part. I would add one small caveat in that I think there are plenty of shows that treat complicated issues like suicide um, very carelessly. Um, and if a show like The 100, which, which spends most of its time preoccupied with exploring these kinds of personal questions, endeavors to understand such a heavy social issue, then it should be character driven and not only used as a plot device. Um, so in that sense, I think there is a responsibility not to treat something lightly that is not light. Um, from a viewing perspective because that can have real-life social ramifications when you sensationalize rape or suicide that's inherently problematic on a social level because that is not how real humans process their trauma and it would have psychological and emotional effects and to pretend otherwise is irresponsible
1: yeah and I think we're actually 100% in agreement here you know to pretend otherwise is, is bad storytelling writers writers absolutely have a responsibility to their stories and to their characters and to portray emotions as close to reality as possible. Um, They have a responsibility to give proper voice and agency to the actual characters who are like going through the trauma to fully explore that trauma. But the one thing that writers do not have and never should have is the responsibility to tell stories to satisfy their audience. And, And for the most part, not for everything, but for most things, I think this show does a fantastic job at that. Yeah, that's
0: a, a really, really good point. And I, I agree that they do this incredibly well.
1: Yeah. And, you, you know, before I move on, I did actually have a fourth level that I wanted to discuss. And that is looking at Jasper on an actor level, um, because I would be remiss if I didn't say that Devin Bostic just totally wowed me with his performance of Jasper from start to finish he he's shown such incredible range as an actor there are very few actors who can pull off both that humor and also that trauma so deftly and devin is one of them i'm i'm sad that we're losing him on this show but i'm sure he's gonna go on to do great things after this so
0: me too um but at least one thing this show is not lacking is excellent actors who clearly understand their characters though devin was exemplary and i'm gonna miss him a lot
1: yeah definitely agree and let's uh let's wrap this one up yeah So as Monty cries, he realizes that Jasper said, let us go. And he rushes off to find Harper. In the mess hall, he sees the rest of the delinquents dead. They all all overdosed on, on the tea. But as he's looking for Harper, she calls out to him and he realizes that she's changed her mind. They hug and she says that she loves him.
0: Finally, someone is choosing Monty. You know, for once, Monty gets what he deserves. Someone to truly appreciate how wonderful he is. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah monty is definitely making harper's list tm thank god <laughs> nice um but but no i i'm just i'm so happy that harper's storyline went in this direction and I'm, I'm glad she chose to live in the end i didn't expect the hundred to kill both jasper and harper but you never know this show says it's going to do a lot of things that i i don't think it's going to follow through with and then they actually do follow through with it and i'm always very shocked um but with this one I, i'm glad they lied
0: yep this was another huge sigh of relief for me um i did want to briefly touch on the Kool-Aid metaphor here. This sounds awful to say out loud, but we totally called this from the moment that Nyla mentioned the medicinal purposes of the Joby Nut.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we, we pretty much nailed that. Um, with the cult plotline in the background this season, this was another interesting story choice for them to make with the the quote-unquote, you know, drink the Kool-Aid phrase, which of course harkens back to the mass suicide in Jonestown where um, a lot of people drink this deadly mixture of chemicals and, and, and powdered soft drink, um, following uh, Jim Jones the uh, cult leader and I don't think this was a subtle reference at all
0: no no not subtle um I think it's interesting though that instead of turning Jasper into this like psycho cult leader they allowed him to maintain his characterization throughout the season for the for the most part I would say um I'm not sure how I feel about this mass suicide I don't think I like it
1: yeah I mean I I think it was it was also to show that mob mentality that we talked about earlier, where it's easier to talk 20 people into something than it is to talk one person into something. Not that I believe that Jasper talked anyone into committing suicide by any means, because um, he didn't. But I, I do think that he implanted an idea in many of them that they wouldn't have had on their own.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. It was it was another way to offset the steadfastness of Jasper's decision, because I think without the lives of lives of all of these other delinquents hanging in the balance... Watching Jasper commit suicide alone would not have been quite as tragic. I think Jasper makes a case for his own choices, but that just doesn't work for an entire group of people, so what you're left with is just tragedy.
1: Yeah, I mean, this, this was a tragic storyline from start to finish. Luckily, we had a bright spot of, of Harper um, choosing to, to live, but other than that, it was very upsetting. <laughs> How many delinquents are left? not maybe only the ones like the main cast Yeah, maybe only the main cast at this point i don't know well yeah i don't know it's not many it's really sad i mean they were kind of the the victims of of another broken system you know yeah okay let's move on to (laughs) bellamy clark and octavia's storyline please move on so we pick up and we are in Bill Cadigan's office right after Bellamy has found out that Sky Crew stole the bunker, and Bellamy is furious. Clark reminds him that because Luna was in the Final Four, there was a chance that no one would survive. Bellamy says that Clark has just done what she thinks she had to do, like always, but he can't stay here knowing what, not knowing what happened to his sister.
0: I think this line was particularly effective because the original reiteration of we did what we had to do to survive is usually how Bellamy justifies the tough calls that he and Clark continually face. It's the phrase they share with each other when times are the toughest. So for him to now turn it around and use it against her really shows that they're not on the same side at all and Clark has to face the consequences without Bellamy's support. You know, She's completely alone
1: yeah and when Clark's alone she she loses her moral center, which is Bellamy. She loses that complete certainty that what she's doing is the right decision, even if it doesn't even if it's a hard decision.
0: yeah, and um, and we see her struggling with this decision for basically the entire episode with with Bellamy on the opposite side of the argument. it makes Clark even more unsettled
1: true. i I, I don't think it helps also that um that it doesn't help Clark that Jaha is so staunchly on her side. ...you know, we see him trying to reaffirm her decision all episode... ...and it doesn't really seem to make her feel any better about the situation. Also, I wanted to say I loved Bellamy's sass here, too... ...about missing the election that made Jaha Chancellor again... ...because it's true, and especially true when um, Clark is without Bellamy... ...that Jaha just swoops in and, and takes charge again. And when Clark and Bellamy aren't together that always seems to be where jaha finds his opening
0: i loved that line too i mean of course i did (laughs) um and i agree that you're right bellamy and clark center each other and they give each other the confidence to stand up for what they think is right um without that certainty they're both somewhat vulnerable and we have seen jaha try to take advantage of that vulnerability whenever he can um the situation included
1: yeah, you know, but in Jaha's defense, I, I really don't think that he's doing this for a power grab by any means. No. He, he's just, he's so supremely convinced, even much more so than Clark ever is, that his way is the only way to survive and that his way is the only way to save the people that he cares about. And he is unwilling to listen um, or even really consider other ideas. He he just really, he wants what's best for his people. I, that, that's true. But I think that's separate from him specifically wanting to be, wanting to be in charge.
0: True. I agree.
1: Abby comes in, and she asks where Kane is, and Jaha says they couldn't get to him or Octavia in time. Clark pulls up the bunker radio to let them say goodbye, but Jaha stops Abby and mansplains to her that there is nothing but pain on the other side of that radio because they can't open the bunker door. Abby understands, then tells him to get the hell out of her way. I, got, I gotta i got say, guys, just the thought of Jaha here trying to explain to Abby why hearing Kane's voice on the radio would hurt her is <laughs> is so obnoxious to me. I just... And again, he's not doing it to be irritating, but that's exactly why it is irritating.
0: Yep. This was so aggravating, I wanted to punch him. I mean, more than usual. It's a classic example of mansplaining, and the idea that Jaha would somehow be more emotionally aware about how Abby would feel than Abby would herself is, again, another example of Jaha's heightened sense of superiority.
1: Yep. Totally agree.
0: I also think that it's really interesting that when Abby asks if she can use the radio, Jaha immediately tries to hide it, but Clark's first instinct is to let Abby and Bellamy say goodbye. I think if we're looking for a way to define what the difference is between Clark and Jaha, who seems to be constantly trying to groom Clark, you know, this is a prime example of that.
1: Yeah. Uh, they reach Octavia through the radio, who reveals that she won and actually promised to share the bunker equally among all the clans. But once people find out that Sky Crew stole the bunker, they will kill her and they will kill Kane. Bellamy says that he's on his way, but Jaha steals the radio back and brings in guards to detain him. And okay first, the look on Clark's face when she discovers that Octavia actually won the conclave. You know, even though Clark admitted that Octavia had a chance of winning, I don't think for one second Clark ever thought she would. So finding out that Octavia actually did win and then Clark, you know, made that decision and basically screwed everything up, it's devastating to her. But at this point, it it was already too late to go back, or or so she thinks, at least.
0: Yeah, I know there was a lot of people who really disagreed with Clark's decision at the end of last episode, Um, and you and I already talked a lot about why we both felt it was the, the right thing for her to do at the time. I'm really impressed with the way they wrote this scene because I think it's important to reaffirm that Clark really thought she had no other choice here. You know, she's obviously devastated when she realizes that there could have been another way.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know if it was the right thing for her to do, but it was definitely the best thing for her to do. And I think that there is a difference that people don't always see there. Um, you know, Clark doesn't always make the right decisions because oftentimes there really isn't a right decision. But she does usually make the best one given the information that she has. And of course, now that she's been given more information and as hindsight is 2020, she's realizing that this maybe wasn't the best decision after all. And uh, Clark's also starting to realize that it could cost her Bellamy to stick to that decision.
0: Totally agree. Yeah.
1: In the office, uh, we see Jaha reassuring Clark that they did the right thing, to which Clark replies that yesterday they were right and today they have to live with being wrong.
0: I loved this line. I think it makes it abundantly clear that Clark is the stronger leader of the two of them. She is capable of recognizing her own flaws and can admit fault when faced with a new reality. She's just so wise. I think, you know, I think she's been through the ringer this season, but I'm glad she's always like unshakably Clark.
1: Yeah, Yeah, As Abby says... She knows that they can't open the door, but the difference is that Abby hates herself for it, which I think is the perfect way to distinguish between how Jaha makes decisions and how Clark makes decisions. You know, Clark can make the hard choices, but that doesn't mean that the consequences of those choices don't take an emotional toll on her, whereas Jaha is able to compartmentalize in a way that's almost inhuman.
0: I loved that line, too. So many good ones in this episode. All the Jaha digs were just so satisfying.
1: (laughs) Uh, When Abby leaves, Jaha says that Abby is strong, but Clark is stronger. And he promises that once the death wave passes, Bellamy will be set free.
0: I think it's interesting that Jaha can sense that Clark's conviction is wavering here. His instinctive effort to bring her back to his side is to placate her with reassuring her that Bellamy will be free as soon as possible. And besides the fact that Clark knows that once Bellamy is released, he will never forgive her anyway. (laughs) Like Jaha is fundamentally missing the fact that this isn't just about Bellamy for Clark. You know, she's genuinely confused about the door and has never made decisions over things of this magnitude based on her own personal gain.
1: Yeah, she's she's never had to stick to a decision she's made after realizing that it was the wrong decision. And that takes an extra level of determination that Clark probably doesn't have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, Jaha says they need to put a guard on Bellamy's door who wants to survive more than be liked, and Clark knows just the guy. We all know this guy. Yeah, th- there was never any question about the guy. <laughs> As uh, so we flash into Murphy and Clark, they are in the elevator and Murphy promises Clark that no one's opening the hatch as long as he's in there with the Mori. And I, t- I have to say guys, did anyone notice Murphy call the door the hatch? Was was this, was this like an intentional lost reference or do you think that the writers just kind of like accidentally put this in?
0: <laughs> no, I th- I think that it was intentional. Um especially given how many other lost references they've made this past season. You know, it's a it's a motif they're they're keeping strong.
1: It's it's a phrase that's so intrinsically tied to Lost, and I love that they just, like, slipped it in there. Um, but I also kind of love the thought that Murphy is this, like, secret Lost fan, and he, like, used to watch it all the time in secret on the Ark, and, and of, of course, Sawyer was his favorite character. Like, this is going to be my new headcanon now. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: my God, I love that. <laughs> I, do, I do think that Lost is an essential part of this show's DNA, and I, I like when they tip their hat to the show kind of as a thank you for existing so that, you know, they could come after. Yeah.
1: So Bellamy is locked inside the turbine room, and Murphy asks Clark if she wants to go talk to him. And she nods, but upon hearing him screaming inside, she loses her nerve and leaves, telling Murphy that she'll be back in six hours. I think it was a great choice here to have Clark actually afraid of talking to Bellamy, and I have to wonder whether it's because Clark genuinely thinks that she might back down and let him go if she sees him in there. You know, I, I don't know if her conviction could hold up under Bellamy's scrutiny. Um, she, does, she, does, she doesn't defend herself because she doesn't believe in herself anymore right now.
0: I think that's definitely part of it. Um, I also think that she's genuinely afraid of facing Bellamy, you know, imagining the disgust on his face when he sees her. His disappointment in her is not something Clark handles well um, because it makes her question her own choices and she just can't go there right now.
1: It is so true. You know, whenever Clark has Bellamy at her back, she's able to push forward with whatever decision she's making, even if it's emotionally devastating. But without Bellamy, she doesn't have that same faith in herself. So we see we see Murphy go in to talk to Bellamy and Bellamy's wrists are bloody from trying to break free. And Murphy says that Bellamy needs to stop hurting himself or he'll call medical. Bellamy tells Murphy that Murphy hasn't changed, that he still only cares about himself. And Murphy says he's wrong.
0: Isn't it funny how they're both kind of right here? Um, like what what Bellamy said is true. Murphy does care about himself. It's just that his circle has expanded to include Amori now. So that same attitude of self-preservation, it encompasses more than one person, you know, but just one more. Well, yeah.
1: And even if it's to a lesser extent, Murphy does care about Bellamy and Clark and Abby and Raven. I don't think he'd sacrifice himself to save them, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about them. Totally.
0: And, you know, Murphy has changed. He has grown. We've seen that slow transformation take place. There are fundamental things about Murphy that won't change. And I think that's what Bellamy is speaking to that feels true here. But it's an unfair accusation because John Murphy is not the same person we met in season one. And Bellamy isn't acknowledging that in this moment um, and utter terror and desperation that he's feeling.
1: Yeah, and murphy knows this is unfair like you can see that on his face he knows he's changed and, and i love that i love the person he's become where he's still cutthroat when it comes down to it but he's also lovable at the same time and i i love that he sticks up for himself i don't
0: think he would have done that in earlier seasons it's a, it's another way in which he's changed that he recognizes his
1: own self-worth and it isn't entirely consumed by self-loathing yeah he, he genuinely cares what bellamy thinks of him which is definitely a change But of course, Bellamy always had that kind of special quality. Like, he's a true leader, and he inspires even cockroaches like Murphy to want him to see the best in him. So true. Bellamy is a special snowflake. (laughs) Uh, Indra wants to find another way into the bunker, but Octavia still believes that Bellamy will open the door, which leads to Echo, who has snuck into the temple, realizing that Sky Crew has stolen the bunker. But before Echo can tell everyone... Octavia reveals that she knows that Roan banished Echo, and she promises that if Echo helps them, Octavia will honor her promise to let Asgata survive in the bunker with all the other clans. I know we've said this so many times before, but
0: Octavia has grown so much this season, when Indra learns about Echo's treachery, you know, she immediately seizes on this opportunity to punish all of Azgeda. But Octavia intervenes and hands out a fair punishment, one that does not condemn an entire clan to die based on the actions of one individual. It's the first time we've seen Octavia truly lead with honor and wisdom. She's given up her incessant search for revenge and handles this with a grace that makes me think that she might have the potential to lead the way that her brother and Clark do, you know, after all.
1: Yeah, it's clear that some people, like, you know, Bella and, and Clark, have innate leadership talent, but perhaps Octavia is going to be someone who learns how to lead by, you know, listening and learning from people that she respects, and I think I would find that really interesting, but um, it's also a topic for another episode, I think. <laughs> yes, yes, and I do think
0: that this is what Indra hoped for her all along, you know, that Octavia would ultimately surpass Indra and become someone who can lead in a way that Indra herself can't.
1: Yeah. So Echo asks Octavia if her plan is to just wait and hope that Bellamy comes to rescue her. Octavia says yes. And and Echo tells her that knowing how Bellamy feels about her, it's a good plan. And I, I just have to, like, point out here, was that uncomfortable phrasing to anyone else? Like, you don't usually describe brothers and sisters as, like, feeling about each other. It was just, like, a bit weird. Yeah, it was weird for me, too. Um... I like that Bellamy's unwavering faith in Octavia
0: has finally paid off, and now it's Octavia's turn to have unwavering faith in Bellamy. Like, this is just, like, a really nice scene after everything that the two of them have been through. Yeah, you know, aside, again, from the
1: flowers in the attic's been there. Um, but that was just, like, a weird writing choice that I did not agree with. Yeah, I agree. But whatever. Um, so Abby comes in to treat Bellamy's wounds, and Murphy tells her to try not to kill this one. And I love that Murphy still gets in those little digs when he can. Like, he's moved past it, but he's not going to let Abby forget what she did. And I, I, I'm actually surprised that he's as over it as he appears, because I would have thought that, you know, I would have thought that he would have held a, a deeper grudge than that. But um, I guess since it was no harm, no foul, it's easier to get over.
0: Yeah, I mean, if Abby had actually gone through with hurting Amori, I think we'd be seeing a very different Murphy
1: right now. <laughs> well, well, if Abby had hurt Amori, I think we'd be seeing either no Abby or no Murphy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I also wonder if he's able to sort of move past it, like you said, because Abby couldn't even go through with it in the first place. I mean, like, regardless of the fact that Clark ultimately injected herself and Amori was subsequently spared, Abby was the one who couldn't do it to Amori, and, and that
1: might have mitigated Murphy's grudge toward her. Yeah, you know, I'm sure that didn't hurt by any means. Abby is shocked to see Bellamy's wrist covered in blood, but he says he didn't do this to himself for fun, and Abby realizes that he wants her to help him open the door. Bellamy says that Kane told him to do better today than he did yesterday, and that's how they're going to deserve to survive. And it was really great for me to see them bringing Kane's line back from episode 1 this season. It really kind of, you know, takes everything full circle and and merging that with the sentiment that Abby has been touting from the beginning of the series that there is a difference between surviving and deserving to survive. So true. Um, and this is especially poignant here because of how much Kane means to both of
0: them it's a great line and I think it would have worked on Abby no matter what but I think that the fact that Bellamy is coming to view Kane as a surrogate father and Abby has come to love Kane romantically doesn't hurt too. I also think that this sentiment is something that Abby has been mulling over this whole episode anyway. Jaha keeps needling her about why this decision is so uncomfortable now when she's made these kinds of choices so many times before and I think it's because Abby wants to be better
1: and she feels like Bellamy's ways ultimately the better choice and not just that she wants to be better but also that she can clearly see other options here whereas when they were on the arc they they were making these kinds of decisions but their options were very limited um and in this case abby knows that she's condemning people to die who don't need to die because there's still plenty of room in the bunker and it's it's really hard to see past that i think yeah So outside, Murphy hears Abby calling for him, but when he runs in, Bellamy jumps him and chokes him out. And Abby says, the problem now is that the airlock control is in the main office, but Bellamy has a plan too. Open the door or die trying. I just have to say, guys, poor Murphy. Like, he tried.
0: He's (laughs) just like no match for an Abby-Bellamy mess around.
1: (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) Abby-Bellamy team up. Didn't know I wanted it so badly, but I did. (laughs) All the pairings. I like them all. So Clark goes into the dorms and sees Nyla, who points out all the empty beds to choose from and says that she guesses they weren't all Clark's people after all. Clark and Nyla hold each other, and Clark tells her that if she opens the door, everyone in the bunker might die, and then no one will be left with the knowledge of how to run the bunker. And I'm glad that this scene made it clear that, to Clark, this still isn't about saving her people. It's about saving humanity. And since her people were the only ones who had an interest in Clark saving them, that's who she went with.
0: I also really appreciated that it gave voice to the fact that Sky Crew are the only people who can run this place. Choosing not to open the door now even in the face of the fact that Octavia One is in itself another strategic maneuver to ensure humanity survives because they'll all be murdered by very upset grounders <laughs> if they don't.
1: <laughs> yes yes, yes. I have been saying this for episodes now. You, you and I both keep saying you know they, they can't take the bunker without Skycrew because grounders don't understand how technology works and and apparently that doesn't occur to anyone else but Skycrew. I, I don't I don't know why, but there you go. Um, so I'm glad that they just kind of reaffirmed that. I also love the dynamic between Clark and Nyla in this, in this scene, you know, their time has gotten steadily less and less sexual, I think, as the episodes have progressed. And in this scene in particular, it was almost like 100% this platonic, almost motherly moment, which really just reinforces my slight annoyance that Nyla's always the one to provide comfort to others, you know, even putting aside her own feelings in the process, because Nyla here. Isn't happy with what Clark did. No. Uh, and, and I just, I want Nyla to have all the best things, guys. <laughs> Take a shot, everyone. <laughs> um,
0: I agree, I agree that this was absolutely platonic and I really appreciated that because at first I was really concerned that they were going to do something, you know, not platonic and that would have felt completely out of character for both of them at this point. I really like where these two have ended up and I'm excited to see where their relationship goes from here.
1: Yeah, basically, it did feel like the writers just needed to have Clark explain her decision to someone who wouldn't beat her up for it. And, and of course, by way of explaining it to Nyla, Clark is really explaining it to viewers for anyone who thought that what she did last episode was, you know, out of character or um, unadvised. Um, there is a reason, you know, it, it just, it just sucked. <laughs> yeah, it sucked a lot. <laughs> so Grounder comes to the temple and tells Octavia that the Black rain has stopped and the clans are coming. And when he asks if she should stop them, Octavia says no to let them come. So do you think Octavia still has faith in Bellamy at this point? Or is she kind of giving up? Um, I don't think she's given up. I think
0: she realizes that any attempt to stall the clans would only aggravate the situation more. Um, and again, demonstrating a sense of forethought and leadership skills I had no idea she was capable of. I think she's still holding out hope for Bellamy, but as she says, you have to face the
1: music sometime. Yeah. Uh, Abby comes in to talk to Jaha and she tells him that she thinks that they should open the door and he thinks it's about Cain but she says it's not that if they choose to save their lives over everyone else's what does that make them and I have two thoughts here so first how like a mansplainer to think that a woman has no control over her emotions and only makes decisions based on her feelings for a man like Abby is a grown ass woman with an intense moral compass but of course this has to be about kane right like i i mean i think the word you're looking for here is sexist and yes jaha is literally the
0: worst um before you get to your second thought though let me ask you this do you think that there's a part of jaha that is a little jealous of kane like i always suspected that he had a thing for abby oh
1: i am 100 convinced that the writers had planned in season one for jaha to be in love with abby uh it was very clear in the text but I haven't really seen it since then, so I'm more inclined to believe that they kind of dropped that thread, just like they dropped the fact that Kane had a freaking wife in episode one, who was Abby's best friend. Oh my god, I completely <laughs> forgot about her. Most people do. <laughs> uh, okay, what was your second thought? Uh, oh yeah, my uh, my second thought is, and, and this in no way detracts from my first comment that Abby is not run by her emotions, because I stand by that. But second, do you think that Abby and Bellamy would be fighting to open the bunker door if Octavia and Kane were safe inside already? Um, again,
0: I don't know. I am sure that the writers wanted to explore the idea of this being a moral moral dilemma for our heroes, so if Octavia and Kane were not the motivators, I am sure that Clark or Bellamy or both would find some reason why they needed to open the door, I'm just not sure if it would have been as convincing to me.
1: I mean, I think the writers would have had them open the door either way, but I'm going to have to say if they were writing true to the characters, I do not think Bellamy or Abby would be fighting. I don't think they'd be happy about it, but I don't think they would be fighting to open the door. Um, so again, you know, while I reinforce that my above point stands, I, I do think that they are fighting for Cain and Octavia first and foremost, and it also helps that they're kind of also fighting this greater injustice
0: yeah yeah I, I agree with that and i i think we've kind of already seen that play out in season two clark and bellamy pulled the lever and everyone in mount weather dies um and they have
1: to live with that i think that the writers wanted to do
0: something new here
1: yeah and really the only way to pit bellamy and clark against each other is to put octavia between them like there's really no other option to get them to turn on each other i think yeah that's that's very true So Jaha says that his decision makes them survivors, and he doesn't understand why this decision is so hard for her when she made the same one with Jake. But Abby says on the Ark, they were saving the human race. Jaha still believes they are, but if they open the bunker, the grounders outside will kill everyone, starting with Clark. And I'll tell you one thing. Jaha knows how to hit people right where it hurts.
0: (laughs) I was thinking that too, like, boy, does he know which buttons to push to gain leverage.
1: (laughs) Uh, so Jaha tells her he's sorry for her loss, that Cain was a good man. And at that, Abby pulls out a sedative and stabs him, saying that Cain is still a good man. You almost had her there, Jaha. Almost. <laughs> was this
0: Like, was this not the most satisfying part of this episode? I don't know. It was like <laughs> completely cathartic for me.
1: <laughs> it's hard because like, while I don't think that Jaha's attitude toward what they did is right. I also don't disagree that, you know, it's very possible the grounders outside would kill everyone when they open the door. Like, he's not exactly wrong. Well, I mean, well, we've sent we've seen the end of the episode, so he is wrong, but but we didn't know that at this point. Um, but in this case, the possibility of saving more people might outweigh the threat of those of losing those in the bunker. And I mean, that's the choice. It's it's them or it's us, uh, which is right. I never know anymore with this show. Like it has me going in circles all the time.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not about whether he or not he's right or wrong. You know, Jaha has always been a very gray character, you know, like all the other characters on this show. It's just that his attitude pisses me off so much Um, and that watching Abby stab him was so enjoyable to me. Like his self-righteousness has always been my issue and watching his self-assurance provoke
1: a physical attack is, is just really entertaining. Yeah, his uh, his um fragile female emotion sentiment at the beginning of the scene was really enough to warrant a sedation, in my opinion. So. I mean, mine too. <laughs> Uh, so once Jaha is down, Abby lets Bellamy in, who promises that neither Octavia nor he will let anything happen to Clark. And I mean, that's cute and all, Bellamy, but Octavia would totally let something happen to Clark. Like, I don't think Clark would fall under Octavia's umbrella of protection at all, unless it's just that, like, Octavia doesn't want to hurt Clark for Bellamy's sake, which is possible. I
0: think Bellamy might have some blinders when it comes to Clark and Octavia's relationship. (laughs) (laughs) He's
1: like, I love Clark, so everyone else must love her too, right? (laughs) Yeah, like totally. There's no no problem here. (laughs) Uh, Clark finds the door to Bellamy's cell is open and, and Murphy is unconscious inside. And she realizes that Bellamy will be going for the door. So as Abby opens the airlock and Bellamy reaches the bunker door, Clark stops him at gunpoint. So Clark has officially reached a level of desperate that we haven't seen from her before. Yeah.
0: In case anyone was wondering, this is her boiling point.
1: Yeah. Like like her, her, her event horizon, her point of no return. She she has to make a choice here. And this choice will change everything moving forward. It will change her. You know, she's either got to step back from the it's what I have to do sentiment, or she has to hold on to that and shoot and kill her best friend. And we've been moving in this direction all season. And now it's finally really coming to a head. Yep. Bellamy tells her this isn't like shutting the dropship door or pulling the lever in Mount Weather or the City of Light. They knew what they were stopping then, but now they know nothing. Clark says if, they shut, if the door stays shut, they know the human race survives, but Bellamy replies that the only way that she'll stop him is if she kills him, and this, it turns out, is something that she cannot do.
0: Yeah, um, I I was actually a little surprised she even fired the first warning shot, and I I think Bellamy was too. However, it's clear in this moment that whatever illusion Clark was under that she has any control here is shattered. Like, Bellamy holds all the cards, and the second that he forces her to consider that she has to do um, this, like, kill shot, essentially, um, and she just, she cracks
1: yeah. I mean, there was never any doubt in my mind, at least, that she wouldn't shoot him and not just because he's one half of the main duo. And it actually has nothing to do with my um, Bellarc shipper goggles either. You know, Clark doesn't have the conviction here that she is doing the right thing. In fact, she knows she made the wrong decision. And it's hard to stick to that without having to make the choice between, you know, the wrong decision and killing your best friend. So uh, without Bellamy backing her up, she, she can't do it alone. She just can't. And I, I truly believe that if any of her friends were standing there, she ultimately wouldn't be able to shoot them either. Yeah, me too. I don't think so. So Bellamy opens the door and Octavia hugs him, telling him that she knew that he'd come through. And he says that he loves her so much. Octavia, you know, she's finally showing Bellamy the love that he really deserves here, even if she's not really able to actually say it yet. You know, she's put him through A lot. (laughs) Um, But after seeing his faith in her last episode, I think she was able to find her faith in him again.
0: Yeah, I breathed a huge sigh of relief at this um, because it felt like we finally wrapped up their issues um, with this arc and it's now complete for me. I feel really good about how we got here and where we ended up. It's not the end end because there is more development in the next few episodes. uh, But this felt like the moment where they put aside their grudges and acknowledged how much they care about each other. And now we can kind of focus on rebuilding some of that.
1: Yeah, you know, after um, we finish all of our season recaps, I really want to do a recap analyzing some of the arcs of characters from this season and then where we want them to go from here. Um, So I'm going to leave all of that for, for that episode but overall i'm glad that bellamy and octavia are back on the same team again because it was just it was stressful as hell for both me and them yeah (laughs) and me as well uh again uh so so the clans are arriving at the temple and octavia tells them that they are now one clan and this is their home and everyone is allowed to go in everyone of course except Echo. <laughs> uh, Octavia will honor Asgata's presence in the bunker, but Echo doesn't get to be a part of that. It's like, you know, I don't know, a little bit of a grudge for Iliad, I'd say. <laughs> mm, yeah, just like a wee bit. And you know, that's fine with me. I mean, me too. If Ilian does not get to survive in that bunker, Echo sure as hell does not get to survive in that bunker. Um, we also saw a really interesting expression from Bellamy here too. You know, He actually seemed to sympathize a little bit, even though he doesn't obviously want her to be in the bunker either. Um, You know, even though she's bought this one herself as well. uh, It was just interesting to me to see that kind of a little bit. It was like he felt kind of bad for her, but not enough to speak up. Ah, Echo. That's another huge topic of conversation for our 4.13 recap, I'd say.
0: Yeah, I think I should just, like, not talk about Echo until we get to the last episode for, you know, hashtag reasons. (laughs) Um,
1: I also did want to add that this
0: scene alone could have been the climax ending of this episode, but this show is so ambitious that they can actually afford to, like, insert this and have it just be like a, n- a merely like another plot beat and and with two more major climaxes to occur after it because this actually happens before raven submerges herself in the tank and before monty and jasper
1: have their farewell oh yeah this is like the least dramatic one for me right honestly. and <laughs> like on any
0: other show like this could have been a season finale yeah let alone uh the ending of an episode and they just like buried it in the middle of the yeah. episode which i think is like incredible
1: yeah so abby kane and bellamy are starting to figure out the hundred members of sky crew who will get to live in the bunker otherwise known as the list tm volume two <laughs> um jaha asks if they call this justice but octavia calls this making things right thanks to her brother and when jaha asks clark if this is what she wanted clark says no one wanted this and octavia says want has nothing to do with it Skycrew gets 100 beds bellamy has the first one the rest is up to them and they now have 12 hours to decide and we're back to square one with this godforsaken list (laughs) seriously talk about full circle um i also love octavia basically being like bellamy gets to live i don't freaking care who else goes in there uh you know she's again put him through so much in the last two seasons and i'm glad that she finally tells him you know if indirectly how important he really is to her yep i have nothing else to say (laughs) about that (laughs) uh so yeah with that now that we have um we get to see this list tm struggle all over again I'm, I'm honestly exhausted, and I think we should wrap this up, and we can tackle that in the next episode. I agree. I agree. So you want to go into our discussion points? Sure. Favorite
0: scenes?
1: What's your favorite scene? Well, mine, by far, was the scene between uh, Raven and Sinclair, where she tells him that he's always with her. Because, like I said, this scene made me ugly cry, guys. I thought, I thought it was brilliant, and it was heartbreaking, and it was expertly written. Um, overall, it was it was a welcome bit of closure between these two characters that didn't get to see. We didn't get to see before they died or before he died.
0: Uh, yeah. And, and you know, this is the one time that we, we have to pick the same scene because I, I can't lie. This was my favorite too. Um, This was just so emotional and in such a positive way, yeah. especially in an episode that was overall so dark. I just, I loved it. And I, I echo everything that you just said. Yep.
1: So what was your favorite line? My favorite line by far was, I don't choose pain, I choose life. Because, you know, in a show with so many powerful quotes, this one is a standout for me. You know, life and pain often come hand in hand. And Raven's been so focused on her pain for so long that she's kind of forgot to live. But now she is choosing life. And if that comes with pain, she's ready to fight. And I love everything about that. Yeah, me too. But My favorite
0: line was actually, yesterday we were right, today we have to live with being wrong. Um, And that's from Clark when she's talking to Jaha. And, you know, Clark is the center of this show. And this line just so nicely sums up why she is so amazing. You know, her her ability to self-reflect and change course when presented with new information is nothing short of heroic and astonishing. And for
1: me, this is why she's the best and I love her. Yeah. Uh, I did have, (laughs) I have a note in here. Sarah's random Bill Cadigan mention of the day, so, although I think I've already mentioned him a couple of times. Um, so Before we close, I just wanted to mention a bit of cool side information that may or may not be relevant next season. Um, so when this episode aired, the writers tweeted some behind-the-scenes images of Bill Cadigan's office in the bunker, and in one of those photos was a Second Dawn poster from before the first apocalypse. And on that poster... We basically see a circle that has eight rings. The innermost ring has the Second Dawn Pyramid symbol, but the outside ring is divided into 12 sections representing the 12 levels of Second Dawn. And guess what those symbols are in each of those 12 sections? I wonder if you said the symbols for the 12 grounder clans ding 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 you're today's big winner (laughs) uh the original symbols for the 12 levels of second dawn became the symbols for the grounder clans themselves and what's even more exciting to me is that this tweet was later deleted which makes me think that it's going to come back in some bigger way next season um so I am still hoping that we haven't seen the last of second dawn or bill cadigan but that is a topic for another day Yeah, okay, so next week, um, next week's episode is called The Chosen,
0: and it's the last one before the explosive season finale. So we're getting close to the end, guys. We're almost there. Two more. And that is our episode. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That's S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at Skycast, and you can find us on Tumblr at skycast.tumblr.com. You can also tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts. I am at bperlman89 and I'm at Sarah Armicade. And thank you for joining us on Skycast and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.